This is the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. Andy Payton is the lead pastor at Methodist Temple United Methodist Church in Evansville, Indiana. Randy Moore is associate pastor at Methodist Temple. Their goal is to see Christ in everything and everyone. Hello, everyone. I'm Randy Moore. Hello, and I'm Andy Payton. It's good to have you with us again this week, and um, we're going to start off this morning uh, bringing everybody up to speed because we're getting pretty deep into what we've been about for the last several weeks, and what we've been about is the 25 Articles of Religion handed on to the church uh, in America by John Wesley. And so, uh, Pastor Andy, before we dig in, uh, can you explain briefly what those articles are? Yeah, so put simply, the Articles of Religion given to the Methodists by John Wesley in the late 1700s um, are basically like guardrails for our relationship with God today. And that's the way we're trying to think about them and talk about them and, and preach on them um, within these podcasts and on our sermon in our sermons on Sunday morning. So yeah, they basically are meant to kind of put a parameter and give us language to how we can understand our, our relationship with God. Okay. All right. Before we dig in, it's been our practice to ask each other how it is with our souls. And then last week, we had a deeper discussion about the the origin of that, of that saying. And I thought we might uh, dig into that just a little bit more today. Well, yeah. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear what you learned, Pastor Andy, about our, our conversation that started last week and, and see maybe what you found in the scripture that uh, gave birth to John Wesley's question, how is it with your soul, or, or technically speaking, how does your soul prosper, I should say, I guess. Yeah, how does your soul prosper? Related, but a little bit different. There's a nuance there. And like most things, it is, it is scriptural. I thought what we would do, this is something I like to do with my Sunday school classes, I like to say, have you ever read an entire uh, book of the Bible? And then I give them a very short one, and possibly the shortest one is Third John, and I think this is where John Wesley got the idea. So get ready. We're going to read right now an entire book of the Bible. Here it is, Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, just as it is well with your soul. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God. For they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing in spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges... He refuses to welcome the friends and even prevents those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you their greetings. Greet the friends there. 
each by name. And so you have it. If you've never read or listened to an entire book of the Bible, now you have. And we we think this is where uh, this question comes from. How is it with your soul? Or how does your soul prosper? I'll come back and read uh, verse 2 again. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health just as it is well with your soul. The writer here is saying to whoever it is he's writing to, uh, Gaius, your soul is well. Your soul is well because of the way that you have exhibited this love. And I also thought about the the hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. There may be a connection there too. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, passage of scripture, Randy. And uh, I think you might be right that it, it could be the shortest in all the New Testament. What's There's another one, Jude is pretty short as right. well. Um, I was sitting there just listening to you read that and I I thought of a time in which, back when I was in my undergrad, a professor told us that we had to read like the entire Gospel of John in one sitting. I got to like chapter ten, and I was nodding off, I'm like, right. oh, and then I felt guilty because I couldn't right. read the whole thing. So, thank you for reading an entire book <laughs> of the Bible to us. It's a beautiful passage, though. The other thing before we move on is this reference to friends, mm-hmm. friendship. Uh, we talk about family, we talk about community, and all of those things are important uh, in the church, but friendship is incredibly important, and I've never caught that. Um, he's, calling, he's calling those in the, in the community friends. Mm-hmm. Well, and Jesus used that for his disciples. I call you friends, and yes. then um, it just serves as a reminder that we as my mother told me when I was in elementary school, we are who we hang out with in many ways. And uh, if we're going to be serious about the spiritual journey, we need to walk with others that are trying to walk the same journey. And so, yeah, I could see how that would be a helpful phrase to remember as we think about our souls today. Yeah, and I believe that my soul is prospering because of this. I mean, just the realization uh that that's what happens. Uh, it's, it's, as we discussed last week, it's not so much about how are we feeling? Are we feeling good? Or are we feeling bad? It is what's happening in your life that is leading to the um, prospering of your soul. Yeah. And, and to get into this scripture and to be reminded of it is, is, uh, is a nice dose of uh, good health for my soul. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, well, the way through is always together. And I'm like you, Randy. Um, these conversations are helping me. And I will say, every time I've preached a sermon on one of these articles of religion, and then every time we've had a podcast on one of these articles of religion, I come away thinking, maybe I should have said it this way, or maybe I should have said it that way. I find that I'm learning new things. God is showing me new things as I'm living through these questions and having conversations and not trying to do it lo- do it alone, but do it in connection with other folks. And we know that that's the way that people are receiving it, or at least we hope that they are. We hope that they don't think that you or I or we have the final answer on any of these things. We're trying to look at them seriously and prayerfully and really study about it, but we're never going to come up with a final answer, and we need each other, and we need those questions to come back to us, and we need those who listen to think about these things, and maybe, not that we're trying to change their minds, but to consider some things even as we're considering them. Yeah, and um, even yesterday, someone came in the office and thanked us for our podcast, and they've never been to our congregation, never been to our church, but just said that they've appreciated listening to the podcast, and the thing that kind of was, well, interesting to me, I guess, is like, 
this person said, I feel like I know you, which is like, I feel so exposed, I guess, in terms of um, doing these conversations are, are helpful to us. But then it's nice to consider the fact that there's a whole community of folks joining with us um, along this journey. Well, you're very conversational anyway in your approach to preaching, but even this, I mean, this format is even more relaxed because mm-hmm. even though you are conversational, uh, down to earth in your presentation, you're still you know, up front playing the role, sometimes wearing a robe and preaching. Mm-hmm. And so to hear a more relaxed presentation, I can see exactly what this person was talking about. Yeah, yeah. And... I want to reiterate what you're saying, too. We don't claim to have the final word on the truth. We're learning just like everyone else. And that fits with the classical understanding of faith, which is faith seeking understanding. God is a mystery that always has something more to reveal. And the moment you think you've arrived, you basically need to know you have not arrived. You have more to learn. We all have more to learn when it comes to our walk with with, uh, the living God. And hopefully that interaction with the person you mentioned led to the prospering of your soul. Yeah, uh, it was so nice to have someone come and offer some positive feedback about what we're doing. And um, this is a new arena for me. And so I'm still getting used to it. But yeah, it's really, well, it's just inspiring, I guess would be a word, um, to know that we've connected with someone and uh, they appreciate these conversations and they're getting something from them because as we've already said, we're getting something from it too. We absolutely are. Okay, let's go ahead and, and, and talk about the article that you dealt with in your sermon last Sunday. And it was Article 8 from the 25 Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church. And uh, I'll describe the, uh, the article here. Of free will, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God, wherefore we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Yeah, that's the... Um... That's a big article for us as Methodists because it's the article on free will. It's also the article from which we get the idea of prevenient grace. If you know, you're just listening, the word preventing was used in the article. Um, and preventing when the article was actually written is a little bit different than we understand it today. Um, basically, preventing grace, prevenient grace is like, another way to say it is like preceding grace, that, that God comes looking for us even before we go looking for God. And it's from that that we begin to experience a, a free will. Um, God begins to set us free for relationship with God is kind of the idea. Um, but the idea, though, the big idea here is um, God comes first. And grace, and the big, this is the big one, grace is not an add-on. Um, and, I, man, that's so important to get. And I can't emphasize that enough because, and here's why it's important, um, If grace is an add-on, then it's something we have to earn, and it's something we have to strive for, and it leaves us with the sense that we don't measure up. If if grace is already given, and God's presence is preveniently seeking after us, then we're not striving for it. Instead, we're responding to something that's already there, or even more technically speaking, we're 
responding to someone that is already there. And that makes all the difference in the world because the moment that God is not an add-on, every single person becomes of sacred value. God's presence is waiting to be found just about anywhere we go. And um, the question becomes, are we going to be open to the spiritual quest today? And that's such a I don't know. I, 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 if I could just preach on one topic for the rest of my career, it would be this one. Because we as humans have a tenacity to turn God into another achievement. And we live in an achievement-based world. And it's really no surprise that we many times distort the gospel into like a, an achievement-based religion too. And it can come, the achievements can come in the form of behaviors I have to measure up to or beliefs I have to measure up to. But the good news of the gospel is God's love is already given. And uh, I guess in some sense, our mission is to convince people it's true. You've said God's love is already given. Grace is already given. And that's true. But I think another helpful way of thinking of it, um, it's not necessarily a gift because it's already there. Right. So, so it's, it's ever, the love is ever present. Yeah. It's not a gift that we have. We do receive this, but it's not as if, oh, here it is for you. No, it's already, that love is already there. Yeah, if you want to stay with the gift analogy, maybe a, a way to think of it is like, the gift is there, you have to unwrap the gift. Yeah. And the way you unwrap the gift is through, through what we call faith. And faith, in this sense, is really about becoming aware of a relationship that has always existed for us from the moment the moment we were born. This relationship with God has all, always existed. And when we come to faith, we become aware of that, that greater life that's always been with us. Mm-hmm. When we get down to the arguments of how these things came into being, though, it's interesting to, to kind of look at that. Because uh, for some, w- there was no way that we could that we could do anything about our salvation, right? Mm-hmm. So we could not respond. We could not even respond to God's love, uh, and that's why then you come up with predestination. We come up with predestination because only God, you know, has the power to do that, and so we have nothing to do with it. God chooses some, and, and others he, he he does not choose. So we don't go there. So this is our way of saying this is the way it, we're able to respond to God's love is through this prevenient grace. Yeah, um, the phrase that Wesley would use is God's grace is free for all and free in all. And you're talking about predestination. That does set us apart from some people within the Christian tradition because they didn't necessarily believe. Even today in the Christian tradition, not everyone believes that God's grace is free for all and free in all. It's contingent upon something that, that we necessarily, well, well, we have to do, really, um, be baptized in a certain way or say a prayer in a certain way or recite a creed in a certain way. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we attach conditions um, conditions to it. But uh, the idea of God's grace being free for all and free in all, though, it, it goes back to the love of God that has been manifested to us in the sacrifice of Jesus, which proves God's love for all humankind. Jesus died for all. If you look at the verses in the New Testament, they all go that direction. Not some, not these people, not just those people, but all. And therefore, God's presence is available to all as well. In your, in your sermon, you talked about the passages that you were thinking about and the passages that, that apply to this. And so you talked. I'll let you talk a little bit about these, starting with John's prologue. 
Yeah, um, John's prologue is arguably one of the most important chapters in all the New Testament just because it, it lays it all out theologically and um, the technical word would be uh, Christologically. Um, if you want to know the Christology of the early church, I think John's, John 1's a great place to go. I mean, you get a great um, picture of what uh, they understood Jesus to be doing and, and all, any, anyway, all that kind of stuff. I can, I can go on and on about that. But tucked in John's prologue is a really helpful verse. It says, the true light which enlightens every person is coming into the world. And of course, John 1 is talking about Jesus coming into the world. But notice something there. In John 1, verse 9, the light was already there. Jesus is the embodiment, the incarnation of a light that's already been given. And light, the light here is, in my opinion, it is the gift of God's presence. An interesting thing to note about John, the Gospel of John, in that prologue, a lot of folks will, well, clearly, I mean, we separate John from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because those are so similar. John is later, and, it, and it's different. It's a more spiritual gospel. And so people might tend to sort of uh, hold it at arm's length and say, well, this, light, this writing is late. However, this very same notion that appears in the prologue uh, in the first chapter of John, you get it in Colossians, and you get it in Ephesians. And Colossians might have been written in 50, like, th- so, you know, decades before John. So it's not a late thought uh, of the first Christians. It's one of the earliest thoughts. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to go really early, I would say Philippians probably is the earliest you could find about this idea of a pre-existent Christ. Um, um, we could get into the weeds <laughs> on this one, but uh, I think just to put simply for folks, Jesus embodies the presence of God that's always existed. Just to be very simple about it all. And and there's different passages throughout the New Testament that certainly point in that direction. And there's going to be different ways to understand that. There's going to be different ways to apply that. Um, but the big idea here is Jesus is, is the incarnation of the steadfast love of God, steadfast love of God that's existed from the, the moment that creation began. Sticking with the passages, and I mentioned Ephesians, and that was one of yours, Ephesians 2, 8. You also took some time to talk about the fact that in Genesis, there's not one but two creation stories, and uh, your point is made pretty profoundly in that second creation story. Yeah, um, in Genesis 2, you get the the second account of creation, as you said, and uh, the story goes, God takes dust from the ground, breathes into it the breath of life. Now, What's interesting here is the same, uh, the word breath, the Hebrew word for breath um, that's translated here is the same word also for spirit. And so what we find in this moment is really a picture of an incarnational view of creation, that, that this creation is a manifestation of the breath of God. It's a manifestation of the spirit of God. Everything we see in a, in a very, in the strictest sense, is the outpouring of God's presence, period. And not it's not just in its own. It's not just in these people, not just those people. It's in everything created. And how we miss this, I'm going to get my soapbox for a moment. <laughs> how we miss this has devastating consequences. Because if God's presence is just in these people and not those people, it gives us permission to do horrible things. And if God's presence is in these people, but not in creation. It gives us permission just to kind of roll over creation as well. 
And now we have an environmental crisis um, as a result. And it saddens me to say this, but Christians are complicit. They've gone right along with it. And uh, I would suggest people read their Bibles and take them seriously in this sense. Because um, if, if we're really going to take seriously these creation accounts, we must take seriously the notion that God, is, uh, God has given us the sacred gift of life. And it must be revered. Creation is grace. I mean, there's just yeah. no other way to look at it. That that in itself is the gift already given. We are born into that gift. Yeah, you just wake up to it. Yeah. It's like this life is, well, it's not about me. It's not about you, Randy. It's about us. And we're in this together, and we're part of a greater life, and, and God has breathed this world into existence um, as a manifestation of the divine love. We talked about some of the history behind this and almost everything we get uh, doctrinally comes out of an argument between, you know, two people. And you spent a little bit of time talking about 300 years after the Bible, Augustine and Pelagius uh, uh, started arguing about this. And Pelagius would argue that we were born free and Augustine would, would argue that we were born flawed, but not hopelessly flawed. Right. And the, and the idea of not hopelessly flawed is because of this notion of the prevenience of grace that that God is still with us. And uh, I think at this point it might be helpful to talk about what is the experience of prevenient grace like in our own lives? And the way that I would describe the experience of prevenient grace in our own lives would be like, it's like a yearning for a bigger life. It's like a yearning for a bigger love. And uh, it's it's almost like an unsettledness, maybe, is a way to describe the the experience of prevenient grace, like, um, I'll just throw out a few examples real quick. Like, the alcoholic gets to the point where they realize it's no longer working. And that's an experience of prevenient grace. Or the successful business person gets to the top of the mountain of their career, looks around and thinks, is this all there is? Or young people today, I'm not saying this is true for every mental illness that people experience, but young people today, I think, are manifesting some depression and anxiety, and that is, in a sense, a form of prevenient grace. It's, it's God's presence calling us to more. It's like, I'm wary of the wariness, and, and that is prevenient grace. And so, no, we're not hopelessly flawed. Um, I don't even like the language of flawed. I, I prefer relational um, God meets us in the mix of all our relationships, and we begin to experience a yearning for a bigger love, a bigger relationship, even in the midst of all the relationships that we have. That's such a more positive and helpful way, uh, healthy way to think about the way God works in our lives. It's a mature way of thinking about it because I think probably uh, you uh, came up against some of the other teachings that would go something like this. And, and, and we might call this uh, coming under conviction, right? You're familiar with, with sure. that. And that's the way God moves preveniently, although in that camp they wouldn't use that language. But it's that you talked about a stirring. And uh, I, I grew up with that, that, uh, that somebody is under conviction, that the Lord is working with them to convince them that, that, oh. they're, that they're sinners. Now, what you're talking about is more, is more grown up than that, but that's, that's still part of this. Yeah, um, and that's, that's a very helpful thing that you brought up there, Randy, because in the 1800s, 
and the 1700s of John Wesley, um, prevenient grace was typically talked about this overwhelming sense of guilt for one's sinfulness. Um, and so there's manifestations of that that continue in Christianity today. But I'm, I'm trying to talk about it more in a way that fits with the way that we see, see the world today. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, I, and I think it, it's a more healthy way, you know. I, I don't think it's helpful to maybe, well, I don't think it's helpful to start out and say, well, you're horrible, awful people, um, but God loves you, here you go. You know, that, that's, right. I, don't, I think that misses the point yeah. of why God created us and how God's love works within our lives today. Um, not saying that God can't use that way of thinking of prevenient grace, but just for me, um, the notion of yearning seems to hit more at home, in my experience of it at least. Mm-hmm. Behind all of this would, of course, be uh, the idea of salvation and, and what is it that saves. And you talked about the fact that um, in Roman Catholicism, there was no other place to be saved but in the church and, and through the sacraments. And then the reformers came along and said, no, 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 it's through grace alone. And then how does that happen then if God is all powerful and we're completely sinful then it just has to happen by divine decree predestination God chose some and not others and every and I loved it when you when you brought this up because I'm, I'm right there with you that everything happens for a reason and what's behind that for most people when they say it is is that God controls every last little thing and determines everything and we say no not so fast it can't be that way well, yeah, and, it, and I mean, that theology, let's be honest, lets us off the hook. Well, it's not my fault the world is what it is. God made it like that. I'm just here to, to kind of go along with it. Boy, that works great if you're in a pra- place of privilege, doesn't it? I mean, that works awesome if, if you're well off. But what about the rest of folks? And uh, beyond that, to say that everything happens for a reason and the reason is always God that ultimately makes God the author of evil and sin. And I just can't bow my knee to a God that, for example, caused the Holocaust. Like, I'm going to go on a limb in here and say, I don't think most people listening to this podcast want to bow the knee to a, the God that caused the Holocaust. So the reason I brought it up in my sermon is we have to be very careful in the things that we say, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. Everything happens for a reason, sure. And sometimes the reason is not God. Um, sometimes the reason's us, and and sometimes the reason is life conflicts with life. And it's just so much more complicated than than that phrase in and of itself. I was straightened out on that point a long time ago. The, the woman who I dated all through college, her her father... I didn't know it at the time, but her father was actually what I am now. He was a licensed local pastor in the United Methodist Church in northern Indiana. And one set of my grandparents went to a church, and um, they subscribed to a Calvinistic uh, approach. And so I was having this discussion with my girlfriend's father one night over dinner, and he said exactly what you said. He said, uh, that way of thinking makes God the author of sin and that wow that was a light that went off for me and then i eventually ended up in the in the methodist church and uh and ended up experiencing grace really uh for the first time of of that kind mm-hmm. well the, it's the starting point really um the calvinistic everything happens for a reason camp begins with the sovereignty of god and the power of god 
um, the Wesleyan Methodist Arminian. There's a bunch of different words that we use to talk about it. It start we start with the idea of the love of God, and the reason, of course, we would start with that is because we see that love in Jesus and his in his life and death and and resurrection. Like that's our starting point, and so. If it doesn't fit with the love of God, it, it doesn't fit theologically, and it certainly doesn't fit with the God that we pray to and the one we worship. Um, so, yeah, I, it all starts, though, with sovereignty versus love, basically. Yeah. And Wesley came along in the 1700s, and what he came up with was so helpful because if you take a look at uh, what he taught, then he was in lockstep with a lot of the reformers in, in a lot of ways, but there's a certain point at which he does depart. Yeah. Uh, the thing you have to understand about Wesley is he lived in a context to, I, I mean, I, I know sometimes maybe we come across this way and, and I'm sorry if we do, but Wesley was not God. Uh, he has a context. And so when we're reading Wesley's stuff, we find that he uses some of the language of the Protestant reformers. But then in so many ways, he takes that language and he nudges it forward. You know, he takes it as far as he could for his time and place. And I'm convinced that that must continue. We can't just continue to live in the 17 and 1800s we don't live in the 17 and 1800s anymore. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, Wesley's words and these articles of religion, again, don't have something to teach us. That is, it, there's timeless things within them, basically. Yeah. And, of course, you, you already had hit on this, but uh, it all comes down to the cross, that, that, uh, that Christ died for all, not some. Uh, Christ died for all. And each person has access to, to that grace that came through the cross. Yeah, and and there's two different ways to think. I, we're going off <laughs> script now, but here we go. Um, I'll go there real quick. Um, one of the big theological questions when it comes to the cross is, which way was the reconciliation going? Was um, God reconciling humanity to God, or was God reconciling God to humanity? Um, there's two different directions. And so maybe to say it simply, um, I think on the cross, God is proving a love that always existed. It didn't just start at the cross. It's a manifestation of the love that always existed. And um, I don't, we don't have time to get into all that today, but that's one of those moments where it makes all the difference in the world whenever you start to actually unpack and think about what it is you're saying when Jesus died for all. I think he's proving, as Paul would say, proving God's love to us. Um, it doesn't start there. It always existed. Well, the application that you made in the sermon was that we're at our best when we are giving ourselves away in, in like manner. Yeah. I mean, we're living into the image of the God that created us. Um, it, it's not a coincidence that if we were just really honest with our hearts, we really listen to our own experiences, our experience of our own lives. I mean, we are at our best when we are loving and serving one another in sacrificial ways. Why? Because that's the, we're made in the image of, of the God that sacrifices God's self for us in sacrificial ways. It, it really goes together. And in the end, um, for me, that's what, um, makes me Christian. I, 
the God that I experience in my life when I'm at my best is the one that I see in Jesus too. He's a confirmation sent, hey, you're standing on solid ground when you're moving in this direction. And at this point, you went back to Scripture, and um, especially the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 and, and Matthew 23 and the, and the teaching of Jesus. Yeah, if you look at the teaching of Jesus, um, to go back to my earlier conversation about prevenient grace, it's like a wary awareness of the wariness. <laughs> and, and so all those passages I talk about, um, Jesus challenged people to move beyond the borders in terms of their own comfort levels and their own preferences. Um, in Matthew 5, the line is, what do we do with our enemies, according to Jesus? We pray for them. We love them. That's moving beyond the border of our wariness. Um, in Matthew 18, when someone does something that offends us, what do we do with them? Well, we don't go around and talk about them to everybody. You know, we don't passively, passively, aggressively post something on social media about that person. No, you go to the person um, to overcome the wariness yet again. And then finally, maybe the most famous of all the passages is Matthew 25. Uh, Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was a stranger, you, come, you came to visit me. Um, again, it's this idea of God's love meets us where we are at but then calls us to a bigger love. We go out and we meet the stranger, um, we meet the poor, we meet the sick, and it's there when we are able to move beyond um, our own preference or comfort or, or border of our lives, so to speak, it's there as we move beyond that. Um, that's where we find Christ. And it was your illustration of this point that really resonated with me, and you talked about a when you were early on in your ministry in Tell City, and your Sunday duties were over and you were home uh, collapsing as we, uh, it happens. And you got a knock on the door and I laughed out loud and others did too. When you were asked to go visit someone in a nursing home and you just didn't want to do it to the very last part of who you are. Well, no, I, it was the first Sunday in Tell City that that happened to me. Um, Cause the first Sunday in the Methodist church typically is a communion Sunday. and. Most first Sundays in the Methodist world start on the first Sunday in July. So it's a hot day in July. I get the knock on the door. This guy says, um, his name's Rick Newton, great, great member of the church, a great saint of the church, if you will, um, knocks on the door and says, hey, um, thought you might want to go take communion to the shut-ins at the nursing home. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and my, internally, I'm thinking yeah. no, but because we're relational, yeah. I said yes. And I went and and then we're driving along, and he says, the lady we're going to see, her name is Martha, the lady we're going to see um, is a wonderful person. She was an elementary teacher, uh, kindest person you'll ever meet. Um, but she has Alzheimer's and dementia, and she won't even remember that we were there. And I, I mean, the selfish part of me thought, I'm not even going to get credit for this. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, isn't it awful to say out loud? But, you know, and, and I know anyone listening to this, you know you've been there. You've, we've all been there. And so I go and we meet Martha and she's kind. And I introduce myself and reintroduce myself. And then we celebrate Holy Communion. And it was like a flash. I call it like a flash of Christ. Um, she looks up at me and she says, after we celebrate communion together, she looks up at me and says, um, Pastor, by coming here this day, you you restored the joy of my salvation. Mm. Gosh, I was humbled. Yeah. Um, and it was a moment where I confronted 
my wariness and I didn't want to go, but I went. And as I listened to that divine nudge to go, right. I found something. I mean, I'm still talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. That happened in 2010. Yeah. 13 years that that had such an impact on me. 13 years later, I'm still telling that story about how a lady that couldn't even remember my name right. yeah. manifested Christ. Yeah, we talked about it last week with Philip in the Ethiopian unit. He was asked to get up and go, and he got up and went. Mm-hmm. It says so much, right? Yeah. Okay, before we run out of time and we're getting close, uh, we do want to move on and talk about uh, next week. And so this Sunday, you'll be preaching on Article 9 of the Justification of Man. And let's just do a bit of a preview on that. Here's the description of it. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ by faith and not of our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. Amen to that. Uh, So kind of a quick preview of what we'll talk about Sunday is uh, justification, justifying grace. God loves us just as we are. we see that in Christ, of course, and that is the foundation, really, of the spiritual quest. Once we have that in mind, then we can move forward, and I like to think of it as a quest um, because there's, al- there's always something more. There's always a new turn that's going to take. Um, I'm, I know I'm spiritually dialed in when I am like excited about what life is going to show me, and why can I do that? because I believe God loves me. And we do need to journey. I mean, I, we're so settled now. Um, but if you look at the scriptures, it's all about journeys. Every single bit of it is about journeys. Abraham. Yeah. I mean, that's your model. <laughs> the guy's like, I don't know how old he is, like 100 years old, and he's old. And, yeah. and God's like, hey, I'm going to call you to a new land. Where's that? I don't know where you're. I, God's like, I don't know. You know, it's, it's unknown. And he leaves his home and goes on a quest with God. And that becomes the model of what real faith looks like. Of course, Moses and the Exodus and Jesus himself left home. Jesus didn't go far, but Jesus left home and Jesus was on a journey. He went on quite a hike to the Jordan River. (laughs) I, I, I forget what the mileage is, but it's not a walk around the block, you know, from Nazareth to the Jordan where John the Baptist was preaching. He went on a quest. And that's us. I mean, if you truly want to be genuine and authentic in this journey, um, you got to be willing to, you got to be willing to go on the journey. Um, And it never stops. That's the book of Acts. We could go on and on and on. Okay. Of the justification of man, that's coming up this Sunday. Uh, Boy, this has been good. Pastor Andy, it's good visiting with you again. And it's good to have all of you who are listening with us. Have a great week and we will see you next week. This has been the Pastor Podcast with Randy and Andy. You are welcome to join us at Methodist Temple in person or online. Methodist Temple is at 2109 Lincoln Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. Our traditional Sunday morning worship service is at 830 with our contemporary service at 11. Log on to our website at methodisttemple.church. We see Christ in you.